Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Hey, Kurt. Pep, man, it's been a while since we've been back in the recording seats, and uh, I just can't tell you how great it is to see your face and hear your voice, and lots happened since we've indeed, last indeed. talked together. Um, yeah. you, you are full force into the launch of your newest book, which um, mm. we're here to talk about today, and very excited about this book, and so already hearing from so many people who are being impacted by your, your work, which is just awesome, Kurt. I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is The Soul of Desire, Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community. Um, this season, our third season of the Being Known podcast is dedicated to this book. So please go out and purchase it wherever you can find, wherever you find your books. And so that you'll be ready to go through this season, and it will mean more to you. And I think the book will even, there'll be some enlightening things about the book along the way. And it's a real great sort of simpatico thing happening between the podcast and the book. It's, uh, it's been really fun. <laughs> Today, we were going we to gonna be talking about chapter six, which is imagine that looking at what we don't see, which of course you couldn't just say, you know, you <laughs> looking at what you don't see. <laughs> All right. I think, wait, wait, just to, just to be clear, it's what you don't yet see. Okay, what you don't yet see. So right. the yet is important. Right. I shouldn't leave the as yet As opposed out. to yeti, as right. opposed to yeti, yes. which is also important. Which you and I both you know, have them. Uh, in my hand right They're now. Right. Right you know, uh, just before we jump in, I just wanted to say, you know, Kurt, today I went, this morning, just out of curiosity, I, I went on to, to uh, Apple Podcasts and um I went down and, and looked at some of our reviews, and I am just blown away mm. by what mm. people are saying about the podcast. I mean, I, mm. you know, and, mm. and if you are someone who is enjoying the podcast, please go and rate it and review it because it helps spread the word um, right. about the podcast. But really, I was just humbled by mm. just the amazing things that, that people are saying. Um, a couple of them mentioned you even. So... Uh, <laughs> So you might want to go and take a look at it. You might need to scroll. Right. You well, might need to scroll well, for a little while before oh your name comes up. Well, but okay, well this is this is so consistent with what my experience has been recently. I'm going places are like, oh my gosh, Kurt, yeah, you have that podcast, right? We love Pepper. Uh-huh. We just love Pepper. Uh-huh. This is and I'm like, yeah, yeah. And they said, and do you have a part? Like I don't know. Wait, do you? Are you on that podcast? Uh-huh. They'll ask yeah. me. That's what they yeah. asked. I go, yeah. yeah. I well, I'm. I tag along. <laughs> you tag right. along for it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hey, oh, listen, my gosh. Let's jump into chapter six. Um, yeah. You know, I, I would love to start with, you know, you, you have a couple of people that you talk about or uh, hmm. uh, in this chapter. Um, we have Ryan and uh, Katrina. And mm-hmm. um, I'd love for you just to sort of talk a little bit about their story, which will help open up some of this stuff for us. Right. It's a story that is... You know, interestingly enough, it's common to us as humans. One, one of the first things we that we, you know, we'll, as we've we've talked about these confessional communities, and we'll be talking more and more about them and how they work. And some people think, oh my goodness, like these confessional communities, they're they're artificial. You know, we've constructed them as part of a group therapy. It's this unique thing that uh, only happens in that setting. And in and there are some elements of it, of course, that are that, that that that's true. But one of the really beautiful things about these confessional communities that we'll 
you know, again, we'll talk more about in, in later uh, episodes, is that there's nothing that happens in these confessional communities that is not happening in normal, day-to-day, come-and-go life. The difference is the degree to which we are doing certain parts of it on purpose hmm. and are consciously aware of, and, and we take time to pay attention to the processes that are taking place in these exchanges between people. But these are not exchanges that we make up only in a group therapy setting. These are exchanges that take place between, you, you know, around the kitchen table, in, in your business uh, meetings with your employees or employer, uh, in your friends, in, on the basketball court, you know, when you're in your art studio. You are, like, this is real life. It's just simply real life that we're paying exclusive attention to elements of it that we just don't let ourselves pay attention to. And part of what our hope is for, uh, for all of us who are listening is that when we get to the end of this book, that we'll see that what we're talking about here is something that we would love to export more consciously and intentionally and in a distilled fashion into real life. And I, I say all that to say that one of these elements that takes place in real life all the time is this notion that, uh, as, as, this, as, our, as our chapter title indicates, is that imagination is something that we as human beings depend upon all day, every day, in order for us to get from one place to the next. I'm imagining a future that is going to be. I walk across the hallway to the water fountain, to the water cooler, to get water, because I'm imagining that when I get there, the water cooler is going to work. Now, again, this might sound to some that this is like, kind of like, okay, that's just so obvious. Like, right. But when you get there and the water cooler doesn't work, and you're irritated because you were really thirsty, you suddenly discover the amount of energy and power that your imagination is carrying forth. Because what trauma does is the trauma tends to shatter our capacity to imagine. It shatters my capacity to hope. It shatters my capacity to literally create an image in my mind about a future of beauty and goodness. Because that future in my memory in my memory, when I anticipate the future, it's so fraught with my remembrance of trauma, of shame, that those neural networks of shame and fear and trauma are all tangled up with the neural networks of my anticipatory mechanism. And so if I am having a really hard time imagining a future that is hopeful, it's because of how trauma has basically put up a bunch of barriers to that literally in the way my neural networks are firing with each other, which is why when it comes to our healing and our recommissioning and our living into a world of beauty and goodness, we need somebody outside of us to begin to imagine things for us before we can do that. But once they do, once we hear what they're doing, once we begin to see what they're seeing, it begins to coax our brain forward little by little by little. And this is what was true for Ryan and Katrina. Katrina revealed that after a period of time of having had a really difficult time with uh, a work situation, over a period of many, many months, she announced that she was making some changes that took a great deal of courage. She announced to the group. She announced to the group that she yeah. was making some changes. And these changes didn't just come. She, she'd had a boss who'd been really pretty abusive. And, uh, and of course, she just felt stuck in this abusive 
work relationship, despite the fact that like her job itself, like what she was there to do, she loved doing her job, but she had a boss who was really, really quite overbearing. But over the course of several months being in the group, as she would say later, I learned that when I would go to my work, like I'm taking this group with me in my mind, that when I was having to confront and have the hard conversation with my boss, then eventually go to HR and all the things that she had to do, that she could literally picture where these other people from the group were standing in the office where she's having the conversation. And this is what we mean by the body of Christ. This is what we mean. Like, this isn't just some kind of theological metaphor that Paul, you know, came up with back 2,000 years ago. This is Paul's sense of what is really, like, he's peering into a realm that other people can't, that other people can't see. Paul's imagination is racing ahead of everybody else's and drawing us in behind. But, like, I'm not going to come up with that unless somebody else does. In the same way, that on Holy Saturday, those disciples who are locked behind closed doors, they're not imagining anything but death and destruction. Right. And we needed God to imagine Easter, something that not even evil could see coming. And even when Jesus in Luke's gospel is on the road with those travelers to Emmaus, they still don't yet imagine. They don't They have the capacity to imagine this until he breaks bread with them. So we're in this group, we're in this one conversation, and Katrina makes this announcement that after months and months and months of her gathering her courage and taking the community with her, she's made these decisions to, you know, to take these complaints to her job and to HR, and eventually there was all these changes at work because of this courageous work that she did. And in the course of this, Ryan starts to describe that he himself has a story that really has a lot to do with how much courage it takes to step out of one job and move into another job. And he had all kinds of reasons why that wasn't going to work. And it wasn't until he started to hear Katrina tell her story that he began to imagine the possibility that he could do something differently. You know, they had, you know, there were plenty of other people who would say to Ryan, oh, you should do this, or you should just do that, or you should just, you know, trust that you'll be fine, or trust God, or whatever, like, you'll be fine, just go do this. And this, of course, is what we often hear, right? No, you'll be fine, just go do this. Jesus will be with you, or whatever that means. And those things are not untrue, but our memory tangled up as it is with our traumas, and by traumas, they don't have to be God-awful traumas. It could be the death of a thousand cuts. It could be growing up in a household where you had to be perfect. It could be growing up in a household where emotion was never described. And so when you really got afraid or you really got hurt or all those kinds of things, like you just had to bury that. And like you're burning so much energy having to contain your wounding of even those micro traumas, even those micro moments, that that energy is not available to you for the courage that it takes to take the next difficult step. But for Ryan... Katrina's story and everyone else's response to her literally began to activate neural networks within him that enabled him to little by little by little imagine, what if this could be true for me? And it's not some abstract story that he reads about it in an article. This is a real woman sitting across the room from him who he has offered comfort to, whom he has encouraged, who then turns back around to him and says, I just want you to know I know how hard this is. 
Nobody's just telling Ryan, you're not being courageous enough. You're too much of a pansy. You're like, you're not, you know, what's, what's your problem? No, they're saying like, this is really hard. Let's do this together. And so, as we like to say, before I live into a different future, I must first imagine it, even if it's in only the micro movements that come. And it's really difficult for me to do that without having somebody else begin to do the imaginative work, even if it's just a little bit ahead of me from where I am. Hmm. And as they do this, I also can begin to imagine things because we don't do a thing in the world. I don't walk across the room without imagining that the floor is going to hold my footfalls. I don't think in those terms. I'm not, that's not where I'm consciously paying attention to, but like, that's exactly what's happening. And so today we would say, uh, you know, as N.T. Wright likes to say, that in Jesus, God's future came forward into our present moment and invites us to imagine the real world, capital R, capital W, that God really occupies, and then drawing our imaginations forward with him, even as hard as it may feel at times because we are not going forward into that future by ourselves. That doesn't feel easy to me to comprehend, to live in, um, that doesn't feel like something that's just handed to me and I, and I can put it in my pocket and I'm good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have a recommendation on how we could do that work or what, what? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, uh, again, if you, um, get to the end of Matthew's gospel uh, and then in Luke's gospel, um, you find that, uh, even at the ascension, Right, the story of the ascension, I believe it's in Matthew's gospel, the story of the ascension, you know, there's been all this time since the resurrection and Jesus has been with several and is it recorded later in the New Testament that there was one ep- episode in which he was present to 500 people at one time. But you get to the ascension and the passage reads in Luke's gospel, but some still did not believe. And you can imagine, if I were one of those folks who'd been following Jesus and there was all this hope and that hope gets shattered by crucifixion and then he's back with resurrection and then he leaves a different way I just want to say that if he's leaving that leaving, that departure can easily activate my felt remembrance of being abandoned. Hmm. It, it activates those neural networks of like, what, what, what was it like for me when he was crucified? And now he's leaving again? There are times when our stories, our remembered experiences of trauma, shame, and fear, again, not just big, not just big moments, but even in, even in the smaller moments, can have so much collective power that any time... God moves forward just a little bit into the fog and says, hey, follow me. Listen to my voice. I know that you can't see me right now, but I want you to see these folks that you're with just one little step at a time. How can we do this? 
that momentary disappearance, like an, like an infant whose mom goes around the corner and the infant can't see mom. And because mom can't be seen, mom's essentially disappeared and creates this existential overwhelm for the infant. And the infant is in distress because the infant can't see mom. Can't see mom seeing her. Can't see mom seeing him. It becomes terrifying. And so it becomes easier not to believe It becomes easier not to hope. It becomes easier not to imagine a new future because there's too much risk that I'm going to let myself walk into the future and then you're going to leave again and again and again and again. And I'm just, I'm not stupid, so I'm not going to do this. But it is those very parts of us that have been traumatized and abandoned and disintegrated that God comes to heal But eventually, that healing process invites us to move forward, to expand our imagination, to take greater risk. And so we are in this practice of being invited by God, being invited by our confessional community to expand our imagination. But we, as we said here before, we don't believe we live in a neutral universe. We believe that we live in a universe where evil has a bullseye on our chests And given its tactics and our complicity, we need access. We need to access and invigorate and strengthen the right hemisphere's way of attuning to the world. And in the book, the concrete practical way that we then begin to look at that is by turning to Psalm 27. And the fourth verse, which we will be unpacking now for the next uh, several episodes, the fourth verse um, becomes just a crucial place for us to turn and help to recognize um, how we can begin to expand this imagination primarily by, you know, employing some concrete things and uh, not just Psalm 27.4, but also the works of art that we will be talking about. How does Psalm 27.4 and the work of art enable us to begin to tap into our right hemisphere's way of attuning to the world and so be less frightened when God and our confessional community members are inviting us to expand as Katrina's like imagination was expanded, as Ryan's imagination was coaxed into doing the next hard thing that he had to do. When we turn to verse 27, one of the first things that we uh, see, if, 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 you, if you read this there, we would read that there's one, this one thing have I asked, one thing will I seek that I will run after, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze upon his beauty and I may inquire in his temple. And just to say initially, like one of the first things is that we recognize that Psalm 27 in general is a psalm that is a plea for help. The whole thing is a plea for help. And when you get to verse 4, you recognize that the fourth verse is a bit out of place. If you were to read the entire psalm, the fourth verse just seems a little wonky, like you just got inserted. But what we come to discover is that as Robert Alter, uh, the, the, the well-known uh, Old Testament uh, Jewish scholar, uh, points out, is that the fourth verse actually is the fulcrum. It's the hinge on which the entire psalm rotates. And you see, the thing is, is that when I need help, I want to know what the problem is, and I want to know what the solution is. I want to diagnose it and give me the answers, but I want it done quickly. 
I don't want to have to contemplate. I don't want to, like, the whole notion of just dwelling and gazing, like, I got problems to solve. Right. I got traumas to heal. I, I, I got, you know, the, like, I, the whole notion of being, the whole, like, looking at a piece of artwork when you have problems to solve, contemplating the beauty of God. Beauty doesn't seem to have any place when we have problems to fix. Maybe later, after the problems are solved, Right. This is what we do in our culture. Yeah, like when you're in that moment where you're talking, you were talking about earlier, where you're you're you you have a trauma, whether that's a big trauma or a small trauma, and you feel like you can't see the hope. It's not necessarily a natural thing to say. Let me look at some art. Let me see something beautiful. Let me, you know, it's for me anyway. You know, my experience is is I I have felt that. You know, that that thing you talked about where you, you feel like there's just, I don't, this is, there's nowhere to go. I can't, you know, I'm, I'm frozen from this. I can't move forward. And even when people are saying it's going to be fine, and even when I draw upon my past of, you know, I've, I've, I've been in these kind of situations before, you know, um, but I haven't thought to, you know, go towards beauty and contemplation and art before. Right. Well, one of the things that's really, you know, fascinating to me is that, like, the Psalms themselves, like, they're poetry. Right. So, if I'm in trouble, when, when we're in trouble, we often turn to the Psalms, which is interesting because we're often not aware that what I'm actually doing is turning to art. Yeah. What I often think I'm doing is, like, I'm turning to the Psalms to get my problem solved. I'm going to go there because it, if I read this psalm, then, I, then that's the mechanical thing that I do, and then I'm going to feel better. As opposed to, actually, there may be some psalms, this one included, where if I'm, going to, if I'm going to sit with this, it's not going to immediately give me the answer to solve my problem. It's going to invite me to be present and dwell in the house of the Lord. That's where it's going to start. And one of the things that we find is the psalm as a piece of artwork itself becomes a way in which the mechanics of interpersonal neurobiology can be understood and applied with their intention without even recognizing that it is art, it is beauty itself that is drawing us into this place of healing. And in fact, it's exemplary of the fact that like art expands our imagination. Right when we go to see a Mark Rothko, like I'm, I'm going to, well, the first time, like I'm like, what the heck? Like what am I? <laughs> I, I, I don't get it. Like well, I'm just looking at like color on a wall. Like I can, I see color in my kitchen. I can go see color anywhere. I can just look at color, and that is part of the point, right? Because it's something that I, I, I need to have my imagination expanded and my encounter expanded. What's so interesting is that this is the story of all the characters in the Bible. I mean, if we think about it, Abraham had an encounter with a God that he didn't understand. And that God kept expanding. Like, yes, you're going to have a kid when you're 100. And you're like, what the heck? I've been trying for 75 years. I can't get a kid. And it's going to be with your wife. It's not going to be with this young woman. It's going to be with your wife. Like, you're you're a wife of, you know, how are, you know, 70, you know, 65 years. It's going to be with your wife. Wow. Like, I have to expand my imagination. And then, of course, how the, all the Old Testament kings and prophets, they're all contending with a God that was unlike any other in Middle Eastern, you know, you know, kind of Canaanite 
religious cults. This was a different God who was asking my imagination to expand. And this God was inviting them to communicate with him in poetry and dramatic presentation. This is the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah isn't just a guy who's yapping at people. If you read Jeremiah, you find any number of times where he basically presents a dramatic presentation as the way that he's telling the message of God to the people. And then you get to the New Testament. The disciples, during and after Jesus' public ministry, like, they have an idea in their head about what the Messiah is supposed to be, and he shows up, and this isn't making any sense. And so they're going to have to reimagine the events of Jesus' life in light of the Old Testament texts. Like, how are we going to do this? And then they have to turn around and reimagine the meaning of those texts themselves. The whole Bible, the Ark of the Bible, is one big imagination station. I mean, God expanding our capacity to imagine in a life that is full of trauma. The trauma begins in Genesis 3, Genesis 4. It intensifies with the murder of not just any murder, right? It's a brother who murders another. Like, And then the whole Noah thing, like that was a bummer day. You know, that was just like all this violence. And God says, come and dwell and gaze and inquire. And all of that reflects how our brains work, bottom to top and right to left. We're not trying to shoehorn information. We're not just giving people uh, solutions to problems. God didn't just send a missive 2,000 years ago on a piece of papyrus and says, these are all the things you need to do and then everybody will be fine. No, Jesus came, lived, and died and was raised. Bottom to top, right to left. Embodiment before we have explanation. Like really good art, the healing of our lives and the recommissioning of our lives, like great art, is something that God shows us. It doesn't tell us. He doesn't explain it first. First, he shows us. And one of the first things that we are shown in Psalm 27, 4, is one thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek. Not 10 things, not three things, one thing. And that reminds me of this notion that, like, per, at the very outset, like, we're, we're alerted that if, if healing is what we want, perseverance will be in order. We're going to have to practice over and over and over again. We like to say that there's this phrase, two millimeters per day. Two millimeters per day. This notion that that's about how fast the neural networks are going to regenerate. And we think, like, that's not very, like, how long does it take me to drive from here to Philadelphia? Like, two millimeters per day, that's a long time Yeah. to get there. I wish God were faster. I wish it didn't take that much perseverance, but it does. And you know, it reminds me of this one one of the other members of our you'll read about in 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 the book this you know this woman Charlotte, who was doing all this really remarkable work, but then she would come back, you know, every so often, and she would just feel uh, so overwhelmed and embarrassed that somehow it hadn't yet taken. Hmm. Right, that she'd tell her story and she would feel seen, soothed, safe, secure, and would have this moment of epiphany, this moment of feeling felt, this moment of having her imagination expanded in the group. But then three or four weeks later, she'd come back and it would still feel the same, like something else has happened at home or in her business. And because she wasn't perfectly able to appropriate what she'd taken in in the group four weeks ago, she feels ashamed that somehow I'm not enough for this process. And so my memory 
of my trauma becomes something that I practice even in the healing of my trauma. Right. I give shame the opportunity to be in charge, to have the talking stick, even in the process of the healing of my very shame that I'm, you know, that I'm experiencing. And so she herself had to practice perseverance in coming back and receiving over and over and over again. She was experiencing that healing and joy required for practice. But because she had to keep doing it, she just experienced that, easily interpreted that as evidence of failure because it wasn't being done perfectly. Yeah, but you've always said that change, you know, happens when we are repeatedly doing the little things over and over and over again. It's not a do things once and then, you know, you have this miraculous change. So this is in line with what you've been saying, you know, all along. Right. Well, I, you know, I, I'm just thinking about our relationship, for example. I, I think, you know, uh, I remember, like, the very first weekend that we met. Yeah. And, you know, it was kind of like love at first sight in some respects. Right? Like, we just, just the amount of joy. I mean, on all of our team. Like, our team was just, it was you know, amazing. really. Yeah. It was amazing. Um, and... And at the same time, I'm aware, and so you, you've got this felt sense of connection, but that sense of connection for the first, you know, that first introduction, uh, it in and of itself is not enough to hold it. Right. But over the course of years now, mm-hmm. and over the course of your and my being vulnerable with each other, and, you know, like, there's very little about me that you don't know. Right. Very little about me that you don't know. And, vice versa. I mean, and when I say that, I say that as a qualifier because, like, frankly, like, I really, I, except for, you know, what I had for dinner last night, which you don't know, but I had pizza, so now you do. Right. Uh, you know, it takes practice. It takes and it practice. takes, we, you know, we, we offer ourselves to each other gradually over time. And, you know, I give you this uh, thing, I'm going to trust you with this part of my heart and then you trust me with that part of your heart and and over time we work to again like create this ballast and this hard deck where in which this relationship that you and I have and the ones that I know that you have with others and that I have with others like becomes the hard deck on which we walk into the world and that takes the hard work of perseverance over and over and over again. Uh, as we've said, again, it's it's not unlike that notion of sitting with Rothko's work, that notion of working out our salvation with fear and trembling through perseverance that we read about in Romans chapter 5. And we'd like to say that like beauty can't be rushed. It's not easily achieved. And it's often not recognized. We also like to say that the brain can do a lot of hard work for a long time, as long as I don't have to do it by myself. And so we find ourselves, with the beginning of this verse, we find ourselves beginning to imagine, right? That our imaginations, in order for, like, our imaginations need coaxing. Right? If, I, if I have to, if I've, I had that near-drowning event at the pool when I'm four years old, it may take me many weeks for me to get my feet back in that chlorinated water. I remember when my daughter was, my daughter Hannah, my oldest daughter, was learning to ride a bike with the training wheels. And she had her, we were taking her out one of the first times, her My Little Pony (laughs) 
training uh, bicycle, <laughs> and she was on a sidewalk, and she was coming up to a driveway which was slanted. Yeah. And she fell. Uh. And you know, like with a horse, you want them to get right back in the saddle, and you know. Right. She it it took a long time to coax her to get back on. I mean, a long time to right. coax her to get back on that bike, and it just yeah. we we just had to keep persevering and saying, okay, we're going to try again today. We're going to try again today, you know, until, you know, finally she got on it and was trusting us enough that we would be there with her along the way until we could let go, take the training wheels off eventually and let her soar. But it was a long process because she kept reliving that trauma. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think your words just there, I mean, like, I, I think in many respects, that is the key. Gave her time to practice trusting you, yeah. that you are there. And the, the, the in, literally the intensity of, of how my brainstem wants to override, my brainstem and my amygdala wants to override and, and draw my attention to fear as opposed to paying attention to those who are with me in the room is what keeps me from getting back on the bike. Yeah. And so if I have people who are willing to stay the course, even in the middle of intensified fear, this is what became true for Katrina. She was in the middle of intensified fear. Like what am I, like if I go to my, if I talk to my boss or bring this, or if I go to HR, I might lose my job. Because all the stories that we can tell about how bad this is going to be. But as she was able to share like she was able to say, what was most important is that I knew what I wanted. I wanted to be in a job that flourished. And I knew that you wanted me to be in that job, you, this community. And I'm going to take you with me. And even if something bad happens, I'm, I'm like, she would talk about like, I could feel you in my chest and feel and sense you between my temples. Hmm. Could see you. That's an expansion of her imagination. Something that six months prior to that, she didn't have. And as Ryan watched her tell this story and was in the room watching her develop the story over those six months, Ryan's story itself was already being transformed. As we like to say, you know, for kids who are coming to the high dive, right? You've got some kids that come to the high dive, you know, in, you know, when the summer starts and they, for the first time, they go right up the ladder and off the dive and other kids are sitting on their towel. And it takes them to the end of the summer before they're willing to get up the courage to, you know, go over to the bottom of the slide and bottom of the ladder and then up the ladder and down the ladder, like out and back. And and they finally go out. And you say, well, gosh, you know, it's good to know you finally went off. To which we would say, actually, no. They've been going off from the first day that the pool opened this summer. But it's only two millimeters per day. And so for all of us who are listening, who are worried about life not happening fast enough, change not happening fast enough, I want us to be aware that even God is a God who perseveres with us. God is practicing in that sense. God knows exactly what it's like. Jesus knows exactly what it's like to have to practice being with people who are taking a long time to get someplace. And we are having to practice being with ourselves. And so to the degree that we, like Hannah, Mm -hmm. is willing to allow Imagine if Hannah had had the thought like, well, when are my parents going to lose patience with me? And because I'm sure that they are, I'm just not going to get on the bike because I don't want to have to put up with the moment when they say to me, oh, we're done. Right. 
but you stay with her and you give her every indication that this is really hard and the more we practice, the more we persevere, the better it gets. And not only because you become more successful at what you're trying to do, but because with every skin knee, our relationship actually becomes more deeply connected Hmm. because we're not leaving the room in the face of your trauma. And this is what we would say that when Jesus says to us, lo, I am with you always. It's not just a convenient throwaway line at the end of a life. It's him saying, perseverance is really hard. The psalmist knew it. Abraham knew it. I know it. And you're going to discover that it's really hard. And you need to know, for all of your falling down off the bike, I'm not leaving the room. I've started this good work in you. I will finish it. No matter how long this takes. And for our listeners, I really want us today to be hopeful, even if it's only two millimeters further down the road, more hopeful. Because we aren't leaving the room. I just, um, you know, there's something very hopeful about the fact that it's okay that it's two millimeters a day. Right. Right. You know, we all want, we see things as problems that we want to solve right away. We want change to happen so fast. Um, And yet, you know, we can't even imagine a better future unless we Mm -hmm. have each other. Mm -hmm. And unless we know that this is going to take time. I mean, it's going to take time. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rome wasn't built in a day, from what I understand. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Two millimeters a day. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this was great, Kurt. Um, I'm loving the book, and mm. I am, I've told you that I am, uh, I'm reading, just keeping up with our conversations about it so that it's fresh and everything. So uh, I'm looking forward to reading the next chapter on Dwell. Uh, which is what we're going to be talking about next week. So Mm -hmm. I encourage all of you to keep up the pace and, um, and we'll be talking about dwell next week. And obviously you can listen to these as slow as you like and (laughs) as many times as you like. Yes, indeed. Knowing that it's only two millimeters a day. (laughs) Yeah. Right on. Thanks, Kurt. This is great. All right, man. Love Love you, man. You too. Yep. See ya. Bye. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at BeingKnownPod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.